Go ahead and flip to Deuteronomy chapter 6 as we finish out this series talking about parents and children. Deuteronomy 6, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading verses 4 through 9. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. These are the words of God. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and Holy God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, this is the final message in our short series, Family Economics, and my goal in doing this series was to simply broach the subject here in our small congregation with the hope that these small seeds would grow and flourish in the years ahead. Uh, the Bible says not to despise the day of small beginnings. So as we grow as a church family, we'll need to grow into these things. Uh, having strong families is essential to having strong churches. Uh, weak families, plagued with abdicating husbands and controlling wives, produce weak churches. When we think about what it means to be masculine men and feminine women, including those two things coming together in the covenant of marriage, we need to keep in mind that all of this serves a greater purpose. All of what we've been talking about serves a greater purpose. There is no marriage and childbearing in the heavenly glorified state. So generation in this way ceases at some point that is going to be uh, finished, which means that our understanding of the family and the dynamics involved with it must be treated as the historical reality that it is. So we are here in history doing what we're doing. We need to remember that it, that's what we're doing uh, in terms of marriage and children. Uh, that's for now. That's not in the resurrection state. In other words, men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, boys and girls, must find their biblical identities in Scripture, and they must live their lives in obedience to the Scripture. In the here and now, we must work against Satan, we must work against sin, and in some sense, we work against time as well, and we work against death in order to please God. So we build families, and we're working against some of those things because the clock is ticking, and so we need to make sure we're sober about it. But in the final new heavens and new earth, they, all of that work will stop. Uh, we won't have the pain of death fully and finally. It'll be finished. We won't have uh, that, that the building families, having children. All of that will stop. Thus, men and women, they must serve God in history, and they must serve Christ in their respective manhood and womanhood. Now, the same is true for children. And uh, we all know how bad things are in our culture. 
Uh, we know the problems associated with no-fault divorce, child sacrifice, uh, the rising number of single-parent households. We understand the problem of chemical and hormonal treatments and the insanity that all of that is. We know that there are issues there. We know the complexities of father hunger when boys and girls do not have a father in the home. Uh, but simply knowing that this problem and these problems exist obviously doesn't exactly address the problem. What we need are solutions. And <clears throat> building healthy homes is absolutely one of God's core means for establishing the gospel of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It, it's important that we do this. Building a home is part of what God uses as his strategy to advance the kingdom. Now, my goal today is for us to see what godliness in the home looks like. None of us does this perfectly well. All of us need sanctification in this area. We can all agree on that, I believe. So how do parents and children glorify God in the home? That's what I'm hoping to answer today. Let's begin with the scriptures. Deuteronomy 6. Verse 4 is the well-known verse referred to as the Shema, which is the first Hebrew word in the sentence, which is translated as hear or listen. The Shema, that's where it comes from. Many Jews recite this verse uh, every day, sometimes in morning, evening, but they recite it. And as far as creedal statements go, it's one of the more profound verses in the Old Testament. It's absolutely one of the more profound verses. Israel's God is Yahweh the covenant Lord, and as one, Echad in Hebrew, as one, He is the creator and sustainer of all things. This God, this is the God who made all things, the one who engages God's people in time and space. He appears to them, and He works with them and brings them to Himself. That's this God. And because of this monotheistic confession, the lives of Yahweh's people must be ordered accordingly. So hear, O Israel, listen, church of God, listen, people of God. Yahweh is our God, and Yahweh is one. That is the confession. And because of that confession, certain things need to be put in place. The hearts of God's people must be anchored to this one true God. Now, this is the language of faith here. When you read this, this is the language of faith. We're told here in verse 5 that they're supposed to love Him with the entirety of their being. The entirety of their being is to love God. Their heart, their soul, and their might, or some translations say their strength must be engaged in loving service to God. The entirety of our beings has to be, because of this confession, has to be ordered, has to be uh, engaged in loving service to God. Now, faith is what fleshes these things out in the various aspects of our being. Faith starts in the heart. It works itself out. It permeates into everything. And when you think of might or strength, what do we think of typically? Physical capabilities, right? So being able to be strong from the inside to the outside. That's what's in view here. The commandments, says verse, verse 6, must be on the heart. That's the center of who you are. That was my, one of my points with one of the students this past week. You want the center of your world to be your mind, not knowing that you know, she admitted that there's no such thing as absolutes, and even that could not maybe be an absolute truth. And we went on that circus for a while. 
But they, that's because they want the mind of man to be the center. But the mind is not the center, it's the heart. <clears throat> now, outward obedience without inward love, what do we call that? <laughs> outward obedience without inward love, we could call that Pharisaism. Or maybe you might say even legal, legalism. Outward obedience without inward love is Pharisaism. Inward love without um, outward obedience is cowardice. So faith, the, the kind of living faith that the Bible emphasizes, faith works outward from the heart. Don't be fooled into thinking that faith is just a matter of internal thoughts and feelings. There's more to it. Now, once the heart has been gripped by faith, working through love, the first sphere of influence for a man or a woman is the home. That's your first, most immediate institution, your home. Once faith has conquered the individual, that faith then works itself outward. The commandments must be taught to our children. That is the clear point of this passage. The commandments of God must be taught to our children when sitting, walking, lying down, and when rising. In other words, when resting, when moving, at bedtime and morning, all of life, all of space, all of time, must be informed by the law word of God. And so children, you need to know the commandments of God. You need to know what they are. Uh, the Ten Commandments is a great place to start because from there, everything branches out. You can reduce the ten down to love God and love who else? Your neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. Those are the two commandments. So you can reduce them down, boil them down to that, but you can also expand upon them and start thinking, thou shalt not murder. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, yeah, it's, you, you shouldn't unjustly take life, but you should also proactively protect life. And that requires a whole host of things. So, so you can boil it down, but you can also expand it like a tree. So children, you need to know these commands. You need to know what God expects of you. Now Moses, writing this, speaks about the total application of God's word to every department of life. And here we find that the education, training, and nurturing of children are things that belong to the realm of the family and certainly not the state. Binding the law on your person, which is, by the way, taken literally by many Jews today. If you go to the Wailing Wall, I've never been, but you can see that they would literally have these phylacteries on their forehead and on your arms, and they would wrap it around and keep that there as a reminder of God's law. Um, I don't think it's necessarily meant to be taken literally, but binding the law on your person is, I think, a figurative way to, of making sure that um, within the family, <clears throat> there is love and respect for God and His Word. There has to be love and respect for God and His Word. The law must incubate in the home. That's the job of parents. So when you, as you parents you think about the relationship with your children, what is your primary task? Making sure that our children know and fear God. They must know and fear God. Now, binding these commandments on your hands means that your work is done obediently and in line with God and His law. So that's, the, that's theology applied, theology coming through your fingertips. Phylacteries between your eyes means that your walk of faith is done by trusting God and not by walking by sight. That's a symbol of self-autonomy. When the Bible speaks, um, especially this comes up in the book of Judges, but um, the, the, when we walk by sight, when we use the eyes, that is not the primary institution of God 
the primary organ, rather, of, of God. God uses the ears. That's why the first word is Shema, hear, listen. So you listen to God's word. That's why we preach God's word, because faith comes through what? Hearing. So the ear is the primary means of which the word goes in, and then it filters out. It's not by sight. And so to bind the law there between your eyes is to make sure that what you're seeing is filtered through God's word. And then it goes out <clears throat> from there. So families should have the commands of God on the doorposts of the house. That's what uh, verse 9 says. And these commands should be on the city gates as well, meaning that both the family and the magistrate are to be guided by God's statutes. All departments of life are supposed to be guided by God's statutes. When people tell you, well, the Bible doesn't apply to the government, that's nonsense. All you need is Deuteronomy 6, verse 9, and the last half of verse 9. <laughs> the law is supposed to be on your gates. Your whole culture is to be informed by this. <clears throat> the future of any culture depends on whether or not the children are being raised to know and fear God. All of life then must be subjected to Christ and his law. And anything short of that is humanism, it's idolatry, it's disobedience. Flip to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, verse 3. <clears throat> Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. Now, if we are not careful, we will be tempted to look at the natural course of events in having children as being something we do apart from the Sovereign Lord. Children are, according to Solomon, who wrote this, an inheritance of Yahweh, verse 3. Children are an inheritance of Yahweh. Other translations use heritage, which helps kind of color in the lines a bit. But generating children through natural means isn't merely a natural process. It's a God-orchestrated process process. Life begins at the moment of fertilization, and God superintends the process, which is why ultimately child sacrifice is such an abomination. Because even for the unbeliever, God is still at work in every womb. Children are an inheritance. They are a heritage. Isaiah 66 verse 9 reads, shall I bring to the point of breaking forth and not cause birth, says Yahweh? Or shall I who causes birth shut the womb, says your God? Now it's important to know that God is the one who opens and closes the womb. God is the one. And the secret things belong to God. We don't always know what His plans and purposes are. But He is the one sovereign over the womb. When God does open the womb, the child is considered both fruit and a reward, the text says. The seed of generation, symbolized in the, in the ancient practice of circumcision, the seed of generation is implanted in the garden womb of a woman, and thus fruit is the result. That's why femininity is related so much to fruitfulness. Women are fruitful. They make things beautiful. They grow fruit in their own womb. <laughs> 
they take a seed and grow it into wonderful uh, product, a human being. And this fruit is a reward, and that's an emphasis of God's fatherly care in giving children as a blessing to the marriage relationship. So they are not the fruit of chance. They are not the fruit of chance, but the blessed fruit of God, as Calvin puts it. Now, curiously enough, Israel is the heritage of God. That's Deuteronomy 4, verse 20. In, in some sense, God's covenantal relationship with Israel is mirrored in childbearing. God's people are God's claim on the world. Remember that the meek shall inherit the earth. God's people are God's claim on the world, and thus the holy descendants of God's covenant faithfulness, that is, the children given to parents, are also God's claim on the world. <clears throat> uh, which is all to say that the children are God's fruit for God's earth. And this is illustrated in verses 4 and 5. Children are arrows. Children are arrows in the warrior's quiver. Isaiah 49.2 reads, He has set my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has also set me as a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. So God the Father, through Christ the Son, by the Spirit's power, begets new children in the new birth. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. All of God's people, through regeneration, are arrows in God's quiver. When a man or woman comes to Christ, they are an arrow in the quiver of the Father in heaven. And families are ordered by God's covenant, the, and when that happens, the added children are the exact same thing. This is covenantal language. When you are born again, you are a part of God's quiver. You are an arrow. And when you have children in the context of covenantal marriage, you also have arrows. So we're all arrows. Arrows raising more arrows is the language of Scripture. Now families are, this is another way of saying, families are microcosms of God's fatherly care for His people. The image of weaponry and conquests, uh, lordship and rulership at the gates, verse 5, is also a description of Israel when they took the promised land. Um, having weapons and conquest, all of that is language of judges. Well, Joshua before that, then judges. And it's the same with our children. So I, I take from this passage that children are indispensable weapons for taking the land. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Proverbs, if we can talk just for a second about Proverbs. Proverbs repeatedly explains the godly dynamic of family life. For example, Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and be glad in the wife of your youth. Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the beauty of sons is their fathers. Proverbs 17.6 Proverbs 20, verse 7, A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. So filling the quiver by having children in God's timing is preparation for godly warfare. Now, while our enemies are busy today castrating themselves and destroying their offspring, which must be stopped, mind you, we must fill the quiver for the crown and covenant of King Jesus. And all of that is in the Lord's timing. 
I wasn't going to get into this, but I'll just say this because there is such thing as the quiver full movement. And they say you just have as many kids as you possibly can. Even if you go bankrupt with 20 kids, you might as well do that. Uh, <clears throat> I don't find that a reasonable position, personally. I think we should have kids, we should have children, and you, we should be responsible in that endeavor. We should want to make sure we have financial means that, that there are certain conditions in the home that are there. Um, but that doesn't mean also you just, you know, willy-nilly. <laughs> so I think there's just a balance there. Flip to Ephesians chapter 6 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You get to Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, then Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. There's that theme of inheritance again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word of God. Now, having plumbed the depths of God's sovereignty and how that works itself out in the history of God's people, their salvation is by grace through faith, remember. Paul now gets to the end of his letter and he talks about practical matters. First, <clears throat> children, listen carefully. Are you all listening intently? Children must obey their parents in the Lord. A husband loves like Christ. A wife submits to her husband in the Lord. It, and, and children obey in the Lord in like manner. Everyone is to be obedient in the Lord. That's the anchor. All obligations of all family members are anchored to Christ. For obedience to be in the Lord is for the home to be saturated in communion with Christ. Any action not in line with Christ is outside the spirit-filled, motivating uh, sphere of faith, and thus it needs to be repented of. And that's why correction happens, right, children? We make mistakes, we do things, we sin, uh, we make foolish decisions, and parents have to come along and say, that was not wise or that was sinful. You must not do that. Because that is outside the sphere of faith that's anchored in the Lord. So obedience is fueled by communion with Christ. We think with children especially that it's just this magical formula and uh, it's just like, and, and throughout the years, I've grown in my understanding of this because it's children need the same thing we need. <laughs> we need to be, know what is the right thing, where did we deviate, and how do we get back? And that's, that's really it, because children are to be sanctified. They need obedience, and that obedience, just like us, is fueled by communion with Christ. If you're not in the Word of God and, and in prayer, you're not communing with Christ. You're not communing with the triune God. How can you claim to love Him if you don't talk to Him? That sort of thing. So parents, thus, we have to teach and model this. Verse 1, for this is right. It's right that children obey their parents. In verse 2, Paul quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, noting that it is the first command with a promise. When obedience to God's promise happens, God offers rewards. And what promise is there for children? Look at verse 3. 
so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. So obedience is linked to prosperity, but it's in a covenantal sense. So when I say the word prosperity, don't think Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen does not understand covenant. But it should be known that it doesn't always work this way because the secret things belong to God. But generally speaking, God's law and the obedience we give in response fuels covenantal blessing. God gives feedback in time and space. <clears throat> we talked about that in the tithing message and how when we respond in faith, God acts. And, I, and I've seen that work in the lives of so many people. God gives feedback. He tells us how we're doing and we have to discern how we're doing so that we can have greater reward. And that obviously doesn't mean just in heaven. That means in real space and time too. Secondly, <clears throat> there's an injunction for parents, especially here, specifically for the fathers. Fathers, verse 5, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the uh, discipline and instruction of the Lord. Regarding the negative aspect, fathers are warned not to provoke their children to anger. And why is that? Well, because dads can do this. Don't do this. And commands are usually there because we sometimes don't obey them. Provocation looks like impatience with children. Um, anger is certainly at the heart of it. Uh, flippancy. Don't do this. Why? Because I said so. <clears throat> well, maybe there's more to it. But when we're flipping about it, we're impatient about it. We are provoking our children to anger. And provocation also is a lack of self-control on the father's part. So the root of the word speaks of putting the child down due to an anger issue. It's really what he's getting at. If you're just merely angry because you don't want to be bothered, you are provoking your child to anger. If you're not using words and you're just merely using actions, what do you think they're going to do? And where do kids learn things from? <laughs> Blame the TV. We'll turn the TV off. Where are they learning from? Parents. You see that in our own, your own kids sometimes. You're like, oh yeah, my son or daughter does that. I think I know where they got that from because <laughs> that's what I do. Now the, the root, as I said, is putting the child down in anger. But said it, stated differently, the correction that we fathers offer to children shouldn't be demeaning. And I think a lot of people look at discipline, we'll get into that in a second, but they just look at that stuff and it becomes very demeaning, almost treating children as if they are not human image bearers of God. We just demean them or, or belittle them. It shouldn't be demeaning, belittling, unbefitting. It shouldn't be degrading or humiliating. That's a huge thing, too. A lot of times in, when, especially if you're just, you know, yelling at them to not yell, for example, um, you're, you're almost humiliating them. Uh, sometimes this provocation could be embarrassing, could just be flat out embarrassing to them. And as they're trying to develop emotionally, you've just exposed that. Uh, sometimes it can be just simply undignified because you have a lot of people who think, well, if I just haul off and smack them, that'll fix it. Th those are undignified ways of training children. And when, when, <laughs> Let me say it this way. When training our children, we must not be children. 
Moreover, the positive injunction is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and not of the parents' wishes. Why am I not allowed to do this? Because God has called me to be your parents, and this is what God forbids, and you doing that is what God forbids. Therefore, don't do it. <laughs> That's how you can handle the situation. Um, a lot of times we think of discipline and instruction just on our own wishes, but Paul says it very clearly to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of what? The Lord. So the two words here are very similar. Discipline literally does mean instruction, and instruction means admonition. Discipline isn't punishment. Discipline isn't punishment, which is what most people think of. Discipline is principled correction. Do you want to discipline your child? Then correct them with a principle and not just because you're angry or mad or inconvenienced. Discipline is principled correction, which, which means that we must expose the error and then correct the error. Explain what was wrong and then say this is what was right or what should be right. Um, this looks like apologies and forgiveness, teaching our children how to properly apologize. I'm sorry, but you're dumb. That's not an apology. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did this, that was wrong, please forgive me. That is how we teach our children. Um, it also looks like um, restitution. If a child steals, they must pay it back plus 20%, or they must work it off. These are God's laws applied in the context of the home. Um, either way, we're teaching them justification by faith, but we're also teaching them sanctification by the same. Because like us, our children need to know how to be sanctified by faith. They need to know who to trust and how to trust. Trust Christ. How do I trust him? By laying my life down before him in repentance and faith and obedience. See, bringing up children means nurture and care. That's what we're doing. That's your job as a parent, nurture and care. The children aren't there primarily for the parent's sake. The parents are there for the children's sake. And the parental task is to grow the children into self-controlled maturation. That's what Paul is getting at here. Now, at risk of being dualistic, we can think of discipline as training the heart in obedience. And instruction is molding children to be better thinkers. Uh, interestingly enough, Paul uses the same word, padia, in 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, the Bible is God-breathed. It's profitable for certain things, all sorts of things. It's profitable for teaching, it's for, for reproof, for correction, and training, padia, or discipline, training, instruction in righteousness. To what end? Verse 17, the equipping of the man of God for every good work. Thus, the Bible must be at the center of discipline, which is to say it must be at the center of the home. So how shall we then live? All of reality is an echo of the Trinity. All of reality is an echo of the Trinity. That is, the unity and diversity of the three persons in the Godhead is mirrored in humanity and creation. For example, the covenantal relationship between a husband and a wife ultimately references, as, as we've seen already, the relationship between Christ and his bride. But there's another aspect to this. In marriage... The man and the woman become one what? Flesh. They become one flesh. There is unity and diversity in the marriage relationship, just like there is unity and diversity within the three 
persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have one God and three persons. The one God and three persons. But we also have one covenantal marriage, one flesh, with how many people? Two. Unity and diversity. And we see this vividly pictured at Jesus' baptism. If you remember, the Father acts fatherly toward the Son by confirming His great pleasure in the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17 The Father speaks, the Son is the Word become flesh, and the Spirit anoints the Word. Earthly fathers would do well to affirm their love and approval of their sons by often saying similar things. And that doesn't mean just for sons, for daughters too. I love you, son. I love you, my daughter. I am pleased with you. I am pleased with you. Say those words and say them often. Now, I have three central points to consider <clears throat> regarding the parent-child relationship. Number one, parents must see to it that the aroma of Christ saturates the home. Parents must see to it that the aroma of Christ saturates the home. We want the aroma of Christ to saturate our homes. A home that has abdicating Ahab fathers and controlling Jezebel mothers is a recipe for disaster. We see in the text that obedience for all parties involved is to be in the Lord. Christ is the one who sets the tone for the marriage relationship and the parental relationship. And it's the aroma of Christ which is infused with the work of and the fruit of the Spirit that creates a home of peace and not strife. It is the aroma of Christ that provides a stable environment rather than a chaotic one. You do not want a home that is chaotic. That's not the aroma of Christ. It's the aroma of Christ that guides the communication in the home. You know, it's like when the kids are little. All right, use your words. Because what, what do kids who don't use their words do? They yell and loudly to tell you that somebody broke their crayon. <laughs> or they wanted the red one, not the blue one. So we're teaching communication in the home. And how's you, if it's not infused by the work of the Spirit, then we're not teaching it well. It's the aroma of Christ that guides communication. If your home is disorderly and out of whack, it's the responsibility of the Father to put it back in order. Children need discipline and instruction. And left to themselves, they will give a home completely over to sin. And that's what immaturity does. But they need structure. They need order. And most of all, they need love. Listen, <clears throat> parenting is an exercise in self-sacrifice. <laughs> It's an exercise in self-sacrifice. You want to be a loving parent? Then give yourselves to your children. Don't throw an iPhone in the toddler's lap and call it good for a few hours. Um, your job, fathers and mothers, is to expend yourselves in knowing your children's hearts. You have to know your children's hearts. You can't do that while you're sitting there on your phone all day, every day. Children need their parents to be actively involved in what they're thinking and what they're feeling so that they can be instructed in how to deal with sin and adversity. The aroma of Christ in the home is the only thing that can give them this. Number two, parents are responsible for maturing their children in the commands of God. 
Parents are responsible for maturing their children in the commands of God. So we talked about the aroma of Christ, a gospel-focused aroma where there is love and self-sacrifice and, and, and uh, grace and patience and all this stuff. That's the aroma. But know that you're responsible for maturing your children in the commands of God. Parents, your, your main job is to keep the gospel fire burning. When you actively educate them, uh, being a, a good listener so that you can be a good advisor, you're throwing a log on the fire when you do that. <clears throat> if you don't make time to listen, you're, you're squelching that. Squashing that. So Christian education is a non-negotiable. The public schools are God-hating, humanist-centered indoctrination camps, which means that they are not an option. Teaching them at home or in a co-op or at a good Christian school, those are the options. But you fathers know that you're responsible for it all. Deuteronomy 6 isn't unclear. In catechizing them in sound doctrine, doing family worship and Bible study in, in the home in some fashion, you are throwing logs in the fire. Training a child in table manners, for example, is training a child to pluck the fruit of the Spirit. When you patiently teach them love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you are throwing a log on the fire. It's hard to, in your impatience, teach your child patience sort of a symbiotic relationship there that we need to know. Um, when you act like a child, you are throwing water on the fire. <clears throat> Fathers, your sons need to learn toughness from you. We need men today. Uh, we need fearless men. Our sons need to know what masculine responsibilities are required of them. They need to know how to fight dragons, but they also need to know how to identify that which is a dragon and hint it's not the sister. And you're not just telling them, you're showing them, right? You're showing them how to speak to women by how you speak to your wife. You're showing them how to treat a woman by how you treat your wife. You are showing them what commitment to the Lord looks like by how committed you are to the Bible, to worship the body of Christ and to the family. Our sons are always watching, and I'll tell you, it's amazing what they'll learn just by watching you. It's incredible, really, when you hear them say things, you're like, huh. I don't think I ever said that to you, but you get it. And you're watching and you're hearing. It's phenomenal. So show them well. Uh, show them well. Be what you want them to be. No excuse making, no wimpiness, no retreating. Get them in the yard to help. Teach them how to work hard. Um, grow them into these responsibilities. And fathers, speaking to you again, your daughters need to learn what self-sacrificial love looks like. You can be reasonably harder on your sons because they do need to be hard toward the world. We want, we're, we're not raising whips, right? We want strong men, so we have to teach them how to be a strong man. But your daughters need to see a father who is tough toward the world and gentle in the home. You're showing them what to look for in a godly husband. You want them to be secure in their identity in Christ. You don't want them to go to college and become some man's sexual exploit. You must represent the standard of Christ wealth so that she is secure in who God has made her to be. So put on the makeup, dads, if you must. All right? It's fine. You can wash it off and you can have the boys burn something later. 
We'll set off fireworks in December. It'll be great. <clears throat> Mothers, talking to you. Sons need, um, sons need unconditional love, but they need to be respected too, for that is what their future wives will need to learn. While dad is teaching them to be respectable, encourage them when they want to pop a wheelie in the driveway. Uh, give them life skills. Applaud them well. They want your approval too. And moms, encourage your sons to go faster, try harder, and never give up. When they screw up, and boys will do that from time to time. I can, I can admit that. When that happens, give them grace. They do need firmness from moms too, but behind their mother is their father. So mothers, uh, regarding your daughters, train your daughters in femininity, diligence at home, uh, nurturing the baby dolls. It's amazing how natural that is for a young girl, maybe of one to two years old, who has a baby doll with what? A bottle. And the world hates that. So keep it up. <laughs> Teach them how to give respect. Those are great tools for moms to give to their daughters. And moms are showing their daughters how to be a godly wife. So do this well, because they're watching as well. Now, obviously, we don't have to go, we don't have time to go into all the ins and outs, but those are a smattering of some things, and they're good places to start. But just remember, what is a man supposed to be and do? Raise the sons in this godly path. Um, what is a woman supposed to be and do? Raise the daughters in this path of godliness. But parents, the commands of God are to be inculcated, so never waste an opportunity to be a good teacher to them when they ask for it and even when they don't. Finally, number three, children are obligated by God to honor and obey their parents. So I'm talking to you, kids. Children are obligated. God commands you to honor and obey your parents. Children are obligated by God to honor and obey their parents. If mom or dad wants you to go and steal something, don't do it. <laughs> if they want you to rob a bank because you're just so stinking cute, don't do it. Other than that, you obey your parents. <laughs> um, this is something we've talked about in our home. <clears throat> that is, all members of the family are obligated to obey God, and parents are in place to help children learn how to do that. And that's your job. Teach your kids how to obey God. But we, don't, uh, we do not compromise on this. The Bible demands it. The family is under assault. The state wants to yank the family to shreds. But we must not allow them to do that. Disobedient children do need correction, but their disobedience isn't just against the parent. It's against God. Um, I've made that mistake before, thinking that disobedience was an affront to me. And I take it personal when it really didn't have anything necessarily to do with me. That's a foolish way to think. This is primarily a God thing. This is a righteousness thing. They are learning how to serve God, and how they respond to you is how they will respond to the Lord. So children, listen carefully. God commands you to obey your parents, so do it cheerfully and willingly. The seeds of faith are meant to grow within the confines of the covenant, which is why we baptize babies. The covenant Lord has brought them in through regeneration through generation, through being born, but he has also confirmed them into Christ through baptism. So we must teach them to love their baptism, 
to love what it represents. And we must say to our children, you've been washed by Christ. You've been brought into him. This is how you learn to love him. Learn to appreciate his mighty acts in history. You've been given Christ, so take him by faith for the rest of your days. Now remember, we are raising oak trees, not saplings. We want maturity in our children, not foolishness. Your baby will grow up and he will need to start his own family. That's the goal. That's the goal here. And as hard as it is, we must hold them close, but not too closely, because they belong to God. Remember, we are raising worshipers of the Lord. And the liturgy that we do here is a great model, by the way, for parenting. <clears throat> so think of it this way. Show your children how God invites us to come to Him, like in our call to worship. God invites us all to come to Him. You never have to be so plagued, kids, with guilt and shame that you can't come to the Lord. You can come to Him because He's invited you. Show them how Christ establishes us like we find in our confession of sin and the assurance of pardon and in our singing. Show them how the ethics of God's law word instructs us as we are confessional and biblical. Show them how the covenant renews and sustains us like when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Show them how Christ sends us forth like in our benediction and commission. We leave as God's gathered people to go into battle in our homes and out in society. Teach them that. <clears throat> and the best way to demonstrate the gospel in the home is to bring them to Christ. If they sin, what do you do? Bring them to Christ. If they are disobedient, bring them to Christ. If they are depressed and downcast, bring them to Christ. If they are struggling with emotions, bring them to Christ. If they are fighting with their siblings, bring them to Christ. If they are happy, guess what? We still bring them to Christ. The ups and downs, the highs and the lows, the mountain peaks and the valleys, bring them to Christ. Matthew 19, 14 is very clear. Let the children come. Let the children alone, he says, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We are raising worshipers, so teach them how the entirety of their lives is to be lived in utter submission to Christ. Teach them to lift up their hearts unto the Lord. I love what Augustine said. I found this. He preached this in Carthage in 418 AD, a long time ago. And I found this quote and I thought this is great. He said, hearts, you see, lifted up not to the Lord. That's pride. That's pride. While hearts lifted up to the Lord, that's called taking refuge. When we say lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. We are taking refuge in God. If you lift up your own heart, that's pride, he says. And our children need to know how to lift up their hearts not in pride, but in worship. They need to know the promises of the gospel. Christ's crushing atonement, sin-crushing atonement, really does forgive us. His life-restoring resurrection really does grant us new life. And his kingdom-establishing ascension really does shape our lives into greater faithfulness. So, parents, show them Christ and give them Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the abundant material we find therein. We can learn so much. And when we see your word, we often see it as a mirror and realize that we have fallen short. So we ask that your spirit would sanctify this word in our hearts. Help our parents to be strong, godly parents. 
And we ask and pray and interpose here for our children that you would grow them and mature them into Christ to be more like him. We thank you for your word now and we sing and we partake of your supper because you are the word and you have given us a word. Through Christ we pray, amen.